You know, there once was a thing that existed on this planet uh, called barbecue fritos. And every time that I ate them, I was transported back to a community pool in Greenwood, Mississippi, uh, where the lifeguard would blow their whistle and announce the, infinite, uh, the infamous adult swim. Now, for many of us kids, that meant that we had to get out of the pool, that we weren't able to swim anymore, and many people tried to hide and tried to keep, you know, go underwater and hope that they could keep swimming, but inevitably they would get brought out of the pool. But for me, that just, it really just meant going from one joy to another. So I would swim with my friends. They would call adult swim, which meant that I would go inevitably barefooted, shirtless, dripping wet to the small sliding window in the side of a building and order uh, from this lady inside a, a small bag of barbecue Fritos and a rainbow slush puppy. And so to this day, every time I would try to eat those barbecue Fritos, it would remind me and take me back um, Now, let me save you the trouble of messaging me uh, and saying, you know, have you tried other things, other alternatives like the chili cheese Fritos or the honey barbecue, the flaming hot or some off brand uh, barbecue corn chip? None of them uh, measure up. Nothing can replace what was already perfected. So you might ask the question, why would I bear my soul Uh, to our local church body watching all over the place and a virtual uh, audience coming from all over the place. And, And my simple point is this. Our senses can be powerful placeholders for the heart and the brain. God designed his creation with eternity in mind and gave our body tools and ways to function that point to powerful and eternal realities or very trivial things that are able to, you know, bring us back to certain things if we have the eyes to see them. Our text this morning, Exodus 13, verses 1 through 16, if you want to start turning there, reminds us of this fact. I'm going to read it for us in a minute, but before I do, we've spent We have a few more weeks in the book of Exodus before we're taking a break and we're going to transition back to the book of Romans for the summer. And if you've been following along with us, the Exodus has finally begun as Pharaoh relents and lets God's people go, um, but only after losing the firstborn of all the people of Egypt. And he has literally sent Israel packing with enough spoils to rival any kind of conquering kingdom or victorious nation, having conquered Egypt and its gods and are now on its way out. But over the last few weeks, we've seen God begin to focus on his people. He's preparing them and establishing practices that he's asked them to keep. And here's the reason why, so that they wouldn't forget what he's just done. But also, he's put these structures in place so that for generations to come, the people of God and all of his children can be transported back to this event and be reminded of what God did with his strong hand. And so our text this morning is in keeping with that. As he mentions uh, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which we heard Gage really kind of talk about at length a few weeks back, but also adds to it this consecration of the firstborn. So I would love to ask you wherever you are sitting in a living room on a couch or or on the floor or in a car, whatever you're doing, I don't know where people watch this from. If you would, if you can, if you're able, would you stand with me as I read our text aloud for us this morning? Exodus 13, 
starting in verse 1 and going through verse 16. We're going to try to have it on the screen for you this morning as well. And it says this, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the fourth month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Havites, and the Jebusites, which, you, which he swore to your fathers to give you, the land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. And no leaven shall be seen with you in all of your territory. You shall tell your sons on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, you shall give that he shall give it to you. You shall set apart the Lord all the first all that the first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among, among your sons you shall redeem. And when in a time to come your sons ask you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hands, on frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Would you pray with me? Lord God, let our words, the words of your servant's mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I want to contextualize this for a moment. If you're an Israelite in this situation, you and your family have spent a lifetime underneath the tyranny and the oppression of Egypt. You've watched them use and abuse your people. And all the while, you've cried out to the heavens for justice and deliverance. And for years, generations even, you waited for an answer, longing to be rescued. Finally, you've just watched God Put, on his, put his power and his authority on full display, seeing things with your eyes that cannot be explained and watching your once mighty captors now hiding in fear 
from your God. Now, over the years, you've heard a lot of Pharaoh's decrees come upon you, whether to decrease the amount of straw for making bricks or whatever they might have been. But just now, you've heard something that you never thought your ears would ever hear. Go and take everything you want with you. Just get out of here. As you leave, you can't help but hear the wailing of families throughout Egypt as they wake to death and judgment that God has brought. But God has brought deliverance to you. The firstborn amongst human and animals um, have passed away, and there isn't a family in Egypt where someone hasn't died, it says in chapter 12, verse 30. So how do you feel? Would you be afraid in the face of such power and precision? Are you happy that someone who has oppressed you and, and, and thrown you down and, and, and justice has escaped you for so long, and now you think this people has got what they have coming to them now that you're free? So you start picking up everything that isn't nailed down. You, you pick up everything that you can on your way out and you load down everything you can as you leave Egypt. And you think, man, I'm going to plunder Egypt. I'm going to get them back for all they've done. And then in the beginning of chapter 13, God says to Moses and he says to his people, give me your firstborn. Verse 2, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and a beast is mine. So how do you feel now? It's one thing to go after the Egyptians. I mean, didn't they have it coming for them? Uh, years of worshiping other gods and idols, years of oppressing people, a lack of justice. 430 years of captivity. But now you're asking me. Your people, the same thing. Moses goes on in verse 3, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. You see, there are these, there are these special moments in life that we experience where something significant takes place. And it's best for us not to forget Moments that can remind us of what is most important in life and, and, and offer to us the opportunity maybe even to grow closer to God. These special moments, moments our theology teaches us, aren't random. They're given to us. They're set up by God. And, and we use this big word, the providence of God. Our Heidelberg Catechism fathers define this big word providence this way. The Almighty Everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herb and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. So what is God trying to teach his people by asking for their firstborn? It's simply this. Your life is not your own. 
And the Feast of the Unleavened Bread that he mentions here uh, isn't really something separate from this. It's not two things that are being established here. Both of these are meant to remind the people for generations to come that it was God who rescued them from death and slavery. Look at verse 5. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Havites, the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Look at how Moses engaged the senses as he describes the next generation and how they'll remember God's rescue. Verse 8. You shall tell your son on that day, it was because of what the Lord did for me when you came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hands, a memorial between your eyes, that the law be on your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep the statute. Here's something I love about this. As Moses is giving instructions, he's using this first-person language because he's literally instructing the people of God as they're in Egypt and about to leave. The Lord brought you out of this place. But as he gives instructions of what to tell the sons, meaning the generations that would come after this when they ask, What is this we're doing? Why are we eating this weird bread every week? Why are we consecrating the firstborn? Why are we doing all these things? He keeps the same language as he explains to the people who were no longer there physically. Here's why Exodus, uh, here's why he does that. Because the Exodus for the people of God never ends. In every generation, The sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve are born into slavery, bound for death, and must be rescued. And so this this greater reality that's going on underneath even the Exodus itself is that the covenant promise of God is the true message. And what all the Exodus and everything is pointing to and ultimately trying to show this temporary rescue from Egypt, the oppressor at the time, to a land of milk and honey is, is, is just a, a message. But the underlying message is that there is a covenant God who wants to be in right relationship with his people. And he is rescuing them out of sin and death and bringing them back to himself so that they may flourish and have all that they need. Does that help you see what giving the firstborn and eating bread is really all about? So why do we need this lesson? Because otherwise, our natural tendency is to live like everything is ours. And we grab whatever we can and we call it ours. Look at the sons of Israel sitting in land flowing uh, with milk and honey generations removed from the hard conditions of Egypt. And they will never know or understand what it was like to be in Egypt. And even greater, look at our, our present bondage without God's help. You see, this is a mercy of God as he extends to the people of God the law. 
and says, keep these, these valuable things, these markers in time, these different events, these different rituals, keep them because they point to the eternal realities and they keep them from slipping, just naturally slipping out of their consciousness altogether. Now, let me be clear. This will not, keeping these rituals, keeping the law will never generate love. What he's saying in keeping the law, the law is just, at best, it's just restraining us. It's keeping us from going as far as our natural tendencies would take us, which is just further and further and further away from God. So it's a tether to the soul, a tether to the body to try to keep it close to God. But it will never generate the love. It's God in his mercy setting a low barrier in saying, do not cross me. It's the same for us today. Being obedient and doing all the right things alone will never lead you to love God the way that He asks and the way that He commands you to love Him. It can lead you to self-love. It can lead you to pride if you're good at it. If you're good at keeping the law, um, and, and, and usually what happens there is you begin to minimize every time that you break the law, right? Every time it's like, well, that was somebody else's fault, or, you know, I wasn't on my A game there, but normally I keep this. That's pretty much who I am. This was just a kind of a blip on the radar. So you minimize every time that you break the law, and then you start adding laws, right? You start making new ones up because it's like if you're keeping these and you're really good at it, you're saying, well, hey, you know, I, I don't do this and I don't do that. Now, whether or not it's in the Bible and part of the law, is it's just you've added to it. So so that makes you look better than you actually are. That's what law keeping can lead you to, but never to the love that God commands his people to have for him. It can also lead you to self-hate, where you know that you aren't good enough. You know that you're broken, and every time that you try to keep the law, you find yourself under condemnation and breaking it, and, and you just can't stop breaking it. So at some point, you just give up trying. And you say, you know what, if there's a God, he's got too many rules and I'm not good at keeping them. So I'm just going to do away with the whole shebang and I'm going to live life like I want to live and, and throw my hands, throw my body at the mercy of the courts and hope. As common as both of these approaches are, neither alone will lead you to love God the way he commands us to. You see, the law, all of its do's and don'ts, was, it was never a chance for us to keep it perfectly. You never had a chance to do that. The law, in its perfection, is meant to point us to the one who kept the law perfectly for us, the person of Jesus. That's the purpose of the law, to restrain us, to point us to Jesus now, why is this lesson so valuable to us? Because as we see these things, it, it points to the reality that God isn't asking anything of us that he hasn't already given himself. When we talk about the consecration of the firstborn, the sacrifice of the firstborn, it's, it's pointing to the reality that this is something that God has done himself. The senses can be powerful placeholders for the brain 
whether it's barbecue Fritos and slush puppies taking you back to a community pool with friends, a smell, a texture, a taste can instantly take you back. God creates this for us so that by doing so, we're instantly transported back to Egypt in God's rescue. Look at verse 14. And when in time to come for your son, ask you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborns of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand, or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Consecrating our firstborn is a powerful tool to remind us that we are not our own. It reminds us that we once belonged to sin and death, and we were purchased back from God for God. The Israelites... That meant sacrificing the firstborn uh, for all the edible animals, goats, lambs, oxen. But for the children and the working animals, he mentions a donkey here, kind of falls in that category of working animals. Uh, We were to bring a substitute. They were to bring a substitute to sacrifice instead of that in order to redeem these firstborn back from death as a powerful reminder of the covenant promise of God. For us today, we mark our little ones in baptism. We celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion, as a sign and seal of the covenant promise of God. These are not saving acts. They point to eternal realities that bring us closer to the one who makes all this possible, who keeps the covenant promise for us. And when we do them, when we witness a baptism, which we long to do again, when we take communion, which we long to do again, we're instantly transported back to the cross. And when we're transported back to the cross and and we look, we come face to the face with the realities of our sin. We come face to face with the reality of what it cost. But just like we said this morning in the confession, we aren't left there. Because when we're, we're there at the cross and we look up, we don't see ourselves on the cross hanging as justice demanded. Instead, we see Jesus. It's a reminder that Jesus was the perfect price, God's firstborn, hung on the cross to set us free of our bondage. Now, for some of us perhaps tuning in this morning, it's a bondage that we've carried around our whole life. And maybe we've never fully understood where it comes from because we haven't quite come to grips yet with what's taking place before our eyes in the cross. Yes, we, we see Jesus. We've heard the stories. We've maybe been to an Easter service or saw a story or you know jumped into a feed like this at some point or read a book or gotten a track thrown at us or whatever it is, but it doesn't move us because we never thought as we look at the cry at the cross in the story of Jesus we've never thought it should have been me we haven't actually acknowledged the full weight of our sin in our rebellion 
Perhaps we spent a lifetime uh, building up our morality by looking around at others and just trying to be better than someone else, trying to stay ahead of the curve. This morning, let me just point out, that is not true biblical Christianity that the Bible talks about. In fact, I would say that that's all world religions. All world religions build their morality by looking around and just staying just ahead of the other and, and, and staying ahead of the curve by doing uh, more than the next person. They're doing enough. That's not Christianity. Christianity is the only world religion that truly looks to some other source besides you as the author and perfecter of your redemption. For others of us this morning, perhaps you've grown, uh, you've, you've known about Jesus. In fact, you, you could probably tell your story of, of, of acknowledging your sin and, and coming to grips with it. But over the years, perhaps you've grown cr- comfortable in your Christianity. And you forgot that God asked you to come back to the cross. To get saved again? No. Because time and distance naturally cause us to forget what happened there. And even though what Christ purchased and secured for you at the cross has no expiration date, even though you are free, our natural tendency is to slowly make our way back to Egypt. To slowly become slaves all over again to other things our jobs, our career, our family, our financial security, our life, our our schedule, whatever it is, we slowly have made ourselves, made our way back to Egypt over time and become slaves to something else. This morning, I would challenge you, go back to the cross. Don't rush. No prompts. Just stay a while. Remember what Jesus did there. Look. Look upon Him. Just in your mind, just just look upon Him. See the sweat and the blood, the dirt, the smells. Just, Just remember what took place there. The transaction that happened there. Isaac Watts described what we find when we survey the wondrous cross that way. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If the whole world were offered to you, It would seem small in comparison. A gift too small. Love so amazing, we can't help but give our lives, our all, whatever He would ask of us. Whatever inconveniences or sacrifices seem small in comparison for what we've been given already, what is ours in Christ. Those who truly comprehend how we've been set free by God's mighty hand. We make ourselves slaves. We willingly make ourselves slaves to other things, to Egypt, to other oppressors. No, 
No, we make ourselves slaves to God. Who is a worthy ruler. Who rules in love and majesty. Who loves us more than oftentimes we love ourselves. Who leads us not into oppression and death. Even, even when we feel in our hearts that it feels that way. We're, we acknowledge that it's, it's our heart that's off. The heart of God is true. The heart of God bleeds for love and peace and justice. So we're free to submit to it because it will lead us to life. Let's pray. Father, this morning, transport us back. I wish we could take the table this morning and we long and grieve for a day that we can experience that together as a family and, and taste the elements and, and on, our, on our mouths and in our hands to better grasp the sacrifice made on our behalf. So, Father, in your way, knowing all things in your providence, keeping us apart as we have and, and, and putting that apart from us for this season, Father, even this morning, your spirit go where I cannot and different places and wherever people are watching this and experiencing this truth, Father, transport us back to the cross. I pray that we put our watch and our phone down and, and, the, and the next thing on our calendar away and we would just sit and stay. We allow our soul to quiet. And we'd remember what happened at the cross. It wouldn't be some just merely saving act that, that, that need not be visited again. But a restorative act that even now as we go back there, we're reminded and we're fueled. Father, fuel us for the week ahead. Fuel us for our... Uh, situations are wherever we are even now give us strength that only you can provide that was purchased to us in the person of Jesus may we survey the wondrous cross this morning and may we respond by giving our life our all everything speak to us now we pray in Jesus name